Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. No, but I, I'm excited. I'm excited. And, um, you know, just just been wrestling a lot with uh, just the message for today. You know, um, these days, my son, you know, when you, when, you, when you see the kids' cartoons these days and how they transition, right, the big thing during, like, COVID was, like, Coco Melon, right? And then you see, like, shows like Bluey and whatnot all show up. Uh, but I'm sure you guys may have heard my son, <laughs> you know, just a little bit, right? Um, the, the kid, he runs around times like he owns the place. <laughs> but, you know, my, my three-year-old son, Ezra, he... Uh, He's been into this new thing these days, right? Uh, it's called Spider-Man. Are any Spider-Man fans up in here? Yes? Yes? All right. Well, uh, my son's been really big into Spider-Man these days. And so, you know, when you think, you know, he's three years old, so you think, like, not Spider-Man from the Avengers. You think, like, Spidey and his amazing little friends, right? The, the show from Disney+. Plus. And we, we love watching that show. We love watching it with them. But I remember one night, out of the blue, my son's like, Appa, I want to watch Bad Spider-Man. I'm like, bad Spider-Man? What is, what is bad Spider-Man? And he proceeds, he's like, no, 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 bad Spider-Man. You know, the one go, bad Spider-Man. I'm like, what is he talking about? What I realized, so I, I kind of flipped through the pictures of Spider-Man, which one is he talking about? And what I realized is he's talking about into the Spideyverse. We're talking about not the, not the Marvel version or the Disney Plus version. He's talking about the animated version. I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but man, what a story. And so, obviously, I ain't going to lay down and wait for this kid to sleep for two and a half hours. I'm going to be like, hey, we're going to watch this in segments, and then you're going to sleep, right? We, we, I negotiate with the three-year-old, right? Say, hey, listen, we're going to watch about maybe 20 minutes, and then we'll stop at a good spot, and we'll go to sleep, right? And as we're, as we're watching the story, if you guys know anything about the Spider-Man story, Ooh, it's tragic. Right, if you remember the original, the one with Tobey Maguire, oh, Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben. And then we see the amazing Spider-Man with, what's his name? Andrew Garfield, right? Where we see his girlfriend. You know the scene? <laughs> and it's just like, so close. And then we see the most recent one with Tom Holland where, oh, Aunt May. And it just seems like when you read through the comics, too, all throughout, you just can't help but see that, man, Spider-Man is nothing but tragedy. And I'm watching this, and my son is insistent, he's very persistent that we watch this, the, the, the bad Spider-Man. And we're watching through, and we're at the scene where... It's not Peter Parker, but it's this kid named Miles Morales, and he has an uncle whom he looks up to, he absolutely loves and adores, and he finds out his uncle is the villain, but in a moment, his uncle chooses him over his duties, and his uncle is shot and killed right before his eyes. And all that guilt weighs onto his heart and on his shoulders, thinking that it's my fault he died. 
And so Miles gets this resolve to say, like, I, I want to make this better. He says, I want to make this right. And so if you know the story of Into the Spider-Verse, it's about all these multi, multiverse, you know, multi-universe of, like, different Spider-Mans coming from different dimensions. And they're all collected in Miles' universe. And, they're, and it's, a, it's a super team of Spider-Man. And Miles like, yo, let me in. Let's do this. Let's make this right. And Peter Parker says, we will, but not with you. I mean, can you imagine? The kid is already suffering from losing the person he has looked up to and he is inspired by, only to be told he's not qualified. And maybe there, there's some of you that resonate with that, where we see life just takes a bad turn. Maybe it's one mistake that you made, and it just keeps snowballing down farther and farther. One thing leads to the next, and it seems like, as I said, you can't catch a break. Church, the question I want to tackle here with all of us today is like... Our, our friend Miles, what do we do when suffering gets worse? Let me say that question again for us. What do we do when suffering gets worse? And as the church, how does God call us to respond when the suffering keeps suffering? And so before we jump into the text, I want to invite you to pray with me. If you bow your heads, close your eyes. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my strength and my redeemer. Holy Spirit, I pray that your presence would just come and that a fresh anointing would fall upon your people right now. That you would cover them in your word and your holy presence. Father, break the hearts that need to be broken. Break the chains that need to be broken. Open the eyes, the ears, and hearts to see what you have prepared for us today. And Holy Spirit, we continue to invite that you would just come in and do what you do best, even now. Yeah. In your son's name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. Let me give a quick recap of what's been going on. The past couple of weeks, we've been going through this series called Obstacles, on the stu- and it's a study of Joseph. Two weeks ago, we touched on Joseph's family origin and how one person's dream might be another's threat. And despite being thrown into a ditch and abandoned by his brothers, we see that God has purpose for Joseph. And that the obstacles that we are faced with, the obstacles that Joseph is faced with, is helping shape his character. That the obstacles in our lives also help to shape our character. They strengthen our drive and give clarity to God's calling in our life. And last week, we walked through the narrative of Joseph in Potiphar's home where he was wrongfully accused. But in the midst of being wrongfully accused, we see God's sanctifying work helps us 
to become the person God had called us to be. And eventually, we see that God elevates Joseph even when he least expects it. He is wrongfully accused, and he is sent to jail. But at the end of chapter 39, the Lord is with Joseph. We see that the Lord is with Joseph, and he is put in charge of all those held in prison. In the same way, God also elevates you when you least expect it. And that leads us to our text today. In Genesis chapter 40, Pastor Rob, when he shared this message, he said you're going to go through chapter 40 and 41. Now, that's a lot for us to read in one sitting. And so we're just, instead of us reading it straight through, I'm going to just walk us through this narrative. And so in Genesis chapter 40, the word of God says this, Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials and put them in prison where Joseph was in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. When we begin this text, we see that there's two officials in the Pharaoh's court. A cupbearer and a baker. It doesn't tell us exactly what they did to offend their king. All it tells us is that he was human. He was mad. To the point that he throws them out and puts them in jail. And that leads us into the place where we see them being put into the place where Joseph resides. Where we're being left off in chapter 39. And so when Joseph begins his interaction with the Pharaoh's officers, he looks at them and asks, why are your faces so downcast? What's going on, man? Talk to me. Talk to me. And they proceed, to, they proceed to share with him that we've had these dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph says, well, don't all interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. Now let's, let's, let's take a quick understanding um, of what's going on here. Dreams in, in this ancient time, in the Eastern context, they're often understood to be a medium of divine revelations. This is the ultimate thing that when divine gods would communicate to people through dreams. They were so significant as they are in today, what, what, what we will be described is that if you've got a dream, you go look for like a magician or somebody to help you interpret it. Now you can imagine for these two office, officers who are of the royal court, they had the accessibility of the best and brightest minds to help them interpret it. Unfortunately... They're locked up in jail. So they don't have access to this, and they're deeply troubled. And so Joseph sees that, and he says, okay, I can help. Because I believe interpretations belong to God. And when he says God, what he meant was his God. And so you have to understand, for Joseph, he's kind of stepping into a bit of a risk by doing this, because he's associating that the interpretations of the dreams that these two men are having 
are being told not by their gods, but by his gods. Joseph is a foreigner who is telling them that the Lord says all dreams are in the domain of not gods, but only his one true God. And he says, I can help you. And he puts it out there in verse 9. And so let's get into the interpretation itself, starting with the chief cupbearer. In verse 9, the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw grapevines in front of me, and the vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom. And soon it produced a cluster of ripe grapes, and I was holding the Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand. So I took a cluster of the grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed the cup into the Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said, this is what the dream means. Three branches represents three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up, restore you to your position as chief cupbearer. And please, Joseph asked, remember me. Do me this favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison. But I did nothing to deserve it. So Joseph is like, bro, I got you. This is what's going to happen. Three days. You're going to get everything you had, and everything's going to be okay. It's going to be wonderful news, all that are involved, and we see that Joseph is like reassuring this guy. Listen, three days, life's going to be good. Everything's going to be all right. But he goes on, he says, but wait, 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 hold up. Just uh, give me a second before I finish. Could I ask for a quick favor? He says, remember me. And as he's talking, not only saying he's, he's telling this guy to remember me, I imagine in the kindness that I'm doing for you, would you mention this to the Pharaoh so I can get out of here? And he's sharing his story that I was indeed stolen out of my own land. And I've done nothing that they should put me in this pit. And here's a couple of things I want to share with you regarding in this story. A couple of things to hear and note is, first off, Joseph's utmost confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, he may not in, in those times have the terms of Holy Spirit. But his confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit to rightly interpret the dream is profound because he's like, hey, man, let me lay it on you. This is what it means. And we see that Joseph doesn't worry about the interpretation because he believes that the interpretation comes from God and it to be true. And so he's quickly just like, hey, man, this is what it is, all right? Like, like you're going to be all right. But let me talk to you real quick. And he proceeds to lay his life and what's been going on. Let me tell you a little bit what's going on in my life. Dream's great. Great, great stuff, man. And you see this plea for his mercy, like, could you do me this favor? Could you mention me? Could you remember me? When you get out of here. He's saying, I don't want to be here, man. And I can imagine Joseph gets a little emotional because he's remembering his suffering as he's getting into this story. He's remembering the significant abuse he experienced early on. And we know this because the word that Joseph used here, this word prison, is actually literally translated as a pit. That same word that is used when Joseph is thrown into the pit. So when he's looking at his current circumstance, he's actually looking at it as if 
That prison is no different from the place of abandonment and rejection by his own brothers. And as he's throwing, he's describing this jail as that same word, it's literally and figuratively being the, saying that he's at the bottom of his life right now. And as he's thinking about what his brothers did to him, what Potiphar's wife conspired against him, now he's where he is, and he has to be thinking, and I can imagine if you were in his situation, you're thinking, man, I don't belong here. I should be home with my family. I should be home with my dad, whom I love. I should be with my brothers. I should be at home. Like, this is not the way things should be. But I'm here, and I'm trapped in a dungeon, in a pit, and what in the world is happening? But please, brother, could you help me out? I don't know if I'll be able to go back to my family, but at least let me get out so I can get my old job back. Anything could be a little better than this. And then we see in verse 16, when the chief baker saw that Joseph had given the first dream such a positive interpretation, he said to Joseph, I had a dream too. In my dream, there were three baskets of white pastry stacked on my bed. And the top basket contained all kinds of pastries for the pharaoh, but the birds came and ate them from the basket on my head. And Joseph tells him, this is what the dream means. Three baskets also represent three days. And three days from now, the pharaoh will lift you up and impale you on a pole. Then the birds will come and peck away at your flesh. Oh, bet you all didn't see that one coming, right? Okay, so we see that clearly this, this did not go the way his friend had hoped for. And what's so interesting about Joseph's interpretation to the chief baker is that he again tells the truth. He steps into this risk of interpreting, and this is absolutely this chance like, bro, this is your chance to like politically move this into your favor. Because these both are higher officials within the Pharaoh's court. I mean, what's better than one person giving a recommendation? Two people giving a recommendation. And yet, we see here that while Joseph could easily use this to leverage something better for himself, he says, I'm not, going to make, I'm not going to be political. I'm not going to work to make everybody like me. But I, what I will do is I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm sorry, brother. Three days from now, you're dead. He says that to somebody who actually has real power over him. This guy is an, is an officer in the Pharaoh's court. And Joseph is is absolutely a nobody. And yet he didn't capitulate the circumstance because he knew who he was. He's a follower of God. And he had to be a truth teller. Because his God is the God of truth. And in the midst of suffering, he still chose to stay faithful and good. Verse 20. Pharaoh's birthday is going to be lit. Three days later. He's preparing a banquet. He's about to ball out with his friends, all his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He says, come back, boys. And then he restores the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. 
And then he takes, and then Pharaoh impales the chief baker, just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph and never gave him another thought. Let's finish this passage before we proceed. Let's see what happens. Third day, Pharaoh's turning up. It's his birthday. He's like, yo, we are part, we're, we're going to have the best time of our lives. And so he's inviting everybody. He's having a feast. All the, all the servants are lifted up. The head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker are among his servants. He restores the cupbearer to his position, places the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but hangs the chief baker. And as Joseph interpreted to them, lift up literally means to summon, that they were summoned. Everything happened the way that Joseph has said it would happen. But verse 23, so much of this story hinges on this one verse for Joseph's story to turn around. Yet what we see is that the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgets about him. He is forgotten. And the chief cupbearer does not do what Joseph asked him to do in the interpretation of his dream. And we see the chapter is over. So let's go back to that question from the start. Church, what do we do when suffering gets worse? What do we do and how do we respond when we thought life would get better and it doesn't? And I want to offer to you, I want to share with you three things in this passage that allows us to see how do we respond in the face of suffering only getting worse. The first thing is this. When suffering gets worse, number one, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when suffering gets worse. What do I mean this? Mean by this? It's very evident from the life of Joseph that God has chosen not to give him a charming life. He did not get everything he ever wanted. In fact, it's far, far from it. Those dreams that he told his brothers being clearly aren't turning out that well. And it's interesting about the Bible is when you read through scriptures, you're actually going to see this kind of theme in almost every kind of direction. What do I mean by that is that you take stories, for example, like Bathsheba, for example, who's minding her own business only one day to realize that her husband is dead at war and the king of Israel has uniquely leveraged his power to put her in a very uncomfortable situation. And now she's going to have a child with him. To make matters worse, she's going to lose that child too. Let's talk about King David. Woo, King David. We love King David, don't we? Right? When we see Pastor Rod, he does the sling. Right? We love King David. When you look at the story of King David, we sometimes forget that the second half of what happens after he becomes king. King David is running for his life from his own son, Absalom, who, can you imagine for some of you that has kids, that your own kid wants to ruin your life? Mm. Now, I mean, we don't have time to talk about the other stories, but you take people like Job, Jeremiah. I mean, constantly, decades and decades, they're just like running from God. And we go even in the New Testament where we take Paul in 2 Corinthians where he's describing literally these afflictions he's experiencing in Asia are so heavy, so stressful, so burdened mentally, emotionally, physically, beyond their strength 
that they have despaired of life like it's a death sentence. It's no difference from dying for them. You see, church, this view of life that we seem to have of this utter pursuit of freedom and happiness, like your ultimate pursuit of life is pursuing your freedom and your happiness on your terms is a completely modern concept of life. Here's the thing you can say, or we can say as Christians, that like, yeah, we reject that, but it doesn't mean that we're not discipled by it because Let's be honest, it's everywhere. When we look at the, for immigrants that make their way into this country, why? Because there's something promised called the American dream. How many times do you need to hear that they just need to find what they're looking for? Bro, do whatever makes you happy. And it's so watered into our culture. You just get to do you, pursue whatever you want, and your happiness on your terms. That is the concept of life today. And Tim Keller does a fantastic job in his book on suffering. He says, think for a second, how people through pre-modern societies prior to the Enlightenment, that they generally believed that God was was transcendent. He was all-knowing, and so when awful things happened, We didn't or could not know all the reasons that those things happened. We couldn't. But God was everything. Therefore, awful things meant that we experienced them, but it didn't mean that we knew all the answers as to why they happened. And in history, the Enlightenment about the 1700s, it introduces this idea of deism. And deism still affirms that God was real, But enlightenment brought through theism basically this idea that God has wound up the clock and then he just lets it go. And now it ticks without him intimately involved. He's not, he's like, my hands are off. And so what deism did is that it replaces the older Christian idea that we exist for God's glory and it replaced it with the belief that God exists to nurture and to sustain us. And we see this idea snowballing. What does that look like? People now believe and certainly believe today that we are not created to serve God, but rather God has created the world to serve us for our benefit. And you fast forward to 2023-2024, where this story has evolved, and now people throughout the world, especially in the West, believe that the natural material world is all there is. The meaning of life, have freedom. Be you, do you, bro. You believe what you want to believe. Do the life that makes you happy. Get the things that will fulfill you. Do the thing that makes you happiest. There's a problem to this. There's a problem with this belief. The problem is that suffering is the great obstacle to life. Suffering can have no meaning because it's a complete interruption to you being you your best version of yourself, whatever that means. And having all that you want, everything going the way you want to go, and suffering is literally and figuratively a cancer that has to be avoided at all costs. 
any sort of suffering or discomfort that may come your way, you're like, no. But here's the breakdown of this Western view. It can provide a compelling vision of freedom and personal fulfillment. You feel good. I mean, it's, it's enticing. But all of that can be done apart from God. You don't need God to do it. However, that ideology, what it lacks most of all is that it doesn't give us any tools whatsoever when the worst things happen. How do you respond when things don't go your way? You had a plan. Maybe you're a brilliant planner. You didn't just have plan A. You had plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E. And that still all fails. And here's the problem with that the worst things happen is that the problems you read in Joseph's story problems you see read in the Bible, in history. I mean, you get, you get to know people well enough. You turn on the news for like five minutes, go on Instagram, TikTok, I don't care, anywhere, right? You realize that there are no promises that everything is ever going to go your way. For those of you that have lived life long enough, you expect the unexpected. You're ready for it. And so we stare into the story going like, what do we do when suffering gets, gets worse? My encouragement, church, my first word for you is don't be surprised by it. Because people around us continue to be surprised that, what? Why would this happen to me? They continue to be surprised by suffering, and this continues to be why the secular and non-religious people are completely unequipped for suffering. And they have to smuggle in these resources from other worldviews to make sense of their dense and hardened realities. It's why you'll find people in places like funerals when people, someone loses their life unexpectedly or at the end of life, and they have nothing to say. But you'll hear them say, well, you know, they're in a better place now. Of course, we believe that sentiment. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ and his resurrection for us is the beginning of a better place. That we do not belong here. This is simply a temporary place where we are. We know where we belong. In fact, Christianity introduces this worldview of a better place. But the question is, how can you otherwise, secular or non-religious people that have no aspect of, of life affirming this idea of a transcendent or a higher being, yet when suffering happens, immediately go to the vision of some kind of spiritual place? It's because people around us have no tool to understand the depravity and the brokenness and the hardships, the suffering that we see like in Joseph's story. Church, we read the Bible, and you get it to about maybe three chapters before it falls apart. You read the Bible. I don't know how many of you guys made a New Year's resolution that I'm going to read the Bible all throughout. I'm going to finish the Bible in one year. 
And I hope you made it past chapter 3. Spoiler alert. (laughs) It doesn't work out. Church, we know this. So it shouldn't be news to you that suffering may not always get better. It might get worse. Why? Because we live in a broken world that's been broken by sin. So what should we do when suffering gets worse, church? First off, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Be ready. Which leads me into the second thing. What should we do when suffering gets worse, church? We should continue to do good. Let's talk a little bit about Joseph here and his favor. Right? It's so obvious that the Lord is with him. Pastor Rob also shared that Joseph was supposedly very handsome. <laughs> now, some of us may be like, well, that might have helped a little bit with his favor, right? Kind of charming his little way through. But he couldn't possibly have all the favor based on his good looks, even with the highest ranking of people in Egypt. He had favor, not because of who he was, but because of God. God was with him, and knowing that God was with him, he actually chose to do something about it. I can imagine when we read the story of Joseph, Joseph was high energy, so likable, so hardworking in everything, dependable, organized in every sphere of his life that he attracted all people. Like, the guy's like a perfect pastor, right? Like, this guy was on the market. I'd be like, Rob, yo, (laughs) like, come on. Like, (laughs) we see all these people naturally attracted and be like, man, I trust you. But you know what we don't find Joseph doing? We don't find him sulking in a corner. We don't see him wasting away in apathy because everything has gone horribly wrong for him. And by modern terms, this is exactly what happened when everything's gone wrong. He's not in some corner looking for some perennial pity party on him. But what he's doing is that he's doing his absolute best. And there's a reason for his favor. And he's leading and he's serving and he's working at a high level. Church, I used to tell this to my youth kids all the time. Listen, if you're struggling with with your anxiety and figuring out what your purpose in life is, if you're resting through depression, I just tell them you should go serve. I mean, yeah, absolutely, you and I, we can talk about your feelings all day. But I can't give you purpose. Only God can. But God doesn't just, like, magically, like, shoot you. Purpose. Purpose. Or like a, a t-shirt gun. Purpose. No, he calls you to act into a place of purpose. And we see that what, that's what Joseph does, is that despite his circumstances, he's still moving. He's still doing the good work of the Lord. And we see that even in verse 8, him stepping into his giftings. The gift that God has given him, his ability to interpret these dreams, even at a risk of going to people of two, uh, the two people of power, saying that, listen, my God may not be your God, But my God is the one who interprets the dreams and has the answers. So I'm going to claim his authority to tell you something that you may or may not like. 
but he steps into his giftings. He steps into his authority, and he's still choosing to lead. He's doing his best, and here in church, he speaks true words. He doesn't manipulate the outcomes for his favor. That's not to say he still doesn't ask for a little help. But he's not, you know, politicking his way through. He's going, this is what God says, and I can live with whatever comes out after it. So what does it mean for, when, for us when suffering gets worse? Church, you have a choice. Brothers and sisters, you have a choice. When suffering gets worse, are we going to live in this ongoing angst of victimhood? Or are we going to embody courage in this hardship? Church, what are you going to do when things get tough? My wife and I, when, when our kids were born, it was hard to kind of go out for date nights. And so our date nights used to be a little walk to the dumpster when we take out the trash. It was great. Listen, guys, it was great. <laughs> and I remember one night as we were making the walk, my wife asked me, how do you know someone's truly good? Right? She was like, I think I'm a good person. I was like, I think you're a good person. And I'm like, man, I didn't know I was like on a philosophical date. I thought it was like just a nice, quiet date. You know, like, how's your day? What's going on? Right? But she, she, she asks me this question. I'm like, all right, let's do this. And I thought about it for a second, and I said, I think you can, te- you can find a testament to the goodness of someone's character when they can still do the good in the absence of their abundance. It's easy to do good when, it's easy to give money to people when you got money. It's easy to feed people when you got food. And it's very easy to look good when you do it. I could look and be like, Eddie, Eddie's a good man. Right? Man, he loves helping out people. But, but church, let me ask you this. Can you still do it when you have nothing? What if your, your supply runs out? What if you're on your last dollar and someone comes up to you and says, hey, man, I haven't eaten in a while. Do you have a dollar? You haven't eaten either. What are you going to do? Mm. You will always be able to see a person's true character when they're in the bottom pit of suffering. When they lose it all, you can truly see a person's character. And Peter says us, says for us in 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will trust their souls to the faithful creator. While what? Still doing good. We have a choice, church. That even when the bottom falls out, you have a choice right now. Even if you've hit rock bottom, you still have a choice. Suffering does not mean you have to turn and just focus on yourself. Suffering does not mean you have to do whatever it takes to fend for yourself. No, in fact, suffering might be the very thing that God is telling you is that like, listen, you ask me help, you want to know what love is? God's not just going to, Chris, this is love right? No. He may send someone into your life that may really challenge you to love them. Wilson, you want patience? God's not going to, patience. No. 
you might send someone that will very much test your patience. Hmm. You ask for faith? Do we want to go there? If you're in your hardest season of life right now, can I, can I push in a little farther? Church, people are watching. Those secular and non-religious people we talk about, they don't have an answer for suffering. Church, we do. And his name is Jesus. And the people out there are watching. Because they're looking for an answer that they don't have, that they're looking for an answer for this question and they don't know where to go. You do. But words are, words are words, but nothing speaks what, louder than words. Actions. You show them that when you're faced with suffering, you say, I'm not going to let this be, beat me down and stop me from doing what I need to do. You say, this is all the more reason. Suffering motivates me, not puts me down. It motivates me to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. So let's get it done. Galatians 6.9 tells us, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we, hear me when I say this, church, do not give up. Do not give up. Which leads me to my final point. That when suffering gets worse, my final last point is that we look for hope in a God who cannot forget us. We look, for, we look for hope in a God who cannot forget us. God will not waste suffering. Church, hear me when I say this. God will not waste your suffering because God does not forget us. He does not forget you. Now, follow me here. That's not to say you won't feel forgotten. Joseph absolutely felt forgotten, of course. He does, um, in the midst of all this positivity, uh, positivity, his optimism, and his public usefulness for all the people around. We see this in the cupbearer, even forgetting him. And And I can imagine there are some of us here that are resonating. We feel forgotten by God. In our hard suffering right now, we feel forgotten by God. And maybe you would say, man, I've tried to do well. I've been trying my best to see the goodness of this situation. God, I'm really trying. But are you still there? And maybe some encouragement for us is that if we can see, is that God's favor is already upon you. Listen, if it's your first time here or, you know, you, you're coming to a church for the first time or you don't, you're not a believer of Christ, I want to invite you. It's a favor you receive by faith. And I want, you, I want to invite you to receive that favor today. And if you're, a fav, if you're a follower of Christ, God's favor is already yours. It's already ours. Listen, it's not earned by doing good things. We don't do good to honor him as a payment for this favorable outcomes. We already have all the honor because of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't fall into this whole karma trap. 
Don't fall for the trap that says you do good things forces God to change your circumstance. That's not the gospel. You and I know too many good people who have lived well only to experience harder and harder and harder things. Church, God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you a good circumstance as a result of you doing good. But what we do know is that because of Christ, we have all the favor we need. You are loved, you are forgiven, and you are cherished by God. I want to invite the praise team to come up. Can I be vulnerable with you guys for a little bit? Is that all right? I love, I, I love sharing stories. And this story is a little bit more personal today. A little context. Um, you guys heard, I, I have a couple kids, right? Uh, prior to, as, as my son was born, about, oh, I want to say like three, three, almost four years back after I found out my son was born, I started looking into places to like move. Granted, it was like COVID and everything, but, you know, it's Bergen County. <laughs> Bergen County, man. And it gets a little tough finding places to live in Bergen County, especially if you're on a ministry salary. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm optimistic, and I say, God, you are faithful. You are good. Three years roll by. Uh, I haven't had much success. In fact, most of my conversations are about, like, if I'm lucky, five minutes. But most of the doors are closed. And, and so when I found out that my wife was pregnant with our third child, I had to make a decision. We're already four people living in a one-bedroom. And legally, uh, it's two people per occupancy. So we've already exceeded that. But on five, I can imagine the property in which we are, we're like, hey, listen, this is too much. So I didn't want, my, my wife was due in December, so I didn't want to put us in a sticky situation that says, hey, uh, we got to figure out how to move and move with a newborn and my wife who just gave, a mother who just gave birth in the middle of winter. So I made a choice and I said, or my, my in-laws had offered their home and I said, hey, let's go to your in-laws. Now, everybody told me, don't do it. Every, like, every word said, don't do it, man. But if you know me, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe an over-the-top over optimist. And I was like, nah, man, it'll be good. It'll be all right. They're good people. We got this. If life gets hard, it's cool. I got this. Man, I'm going to tell you just right now, I don't got it. <laughs> <laughs> Two days after my daughter was born, uh, my mom came up to visit. And there was a small, I, don't, I can't even call it small. There was a conflict between my father-in-law and my mom that caused a big divide in my family. My, uh, my, my heart really breaks for my wife. I'm glad she's not sitting here because I, I, I wouldn't be able to look at her. But my wife worked so hard to build a healthy relationship with my mom. In a split moment, it was broken. It was so bad to the point that my mom turns to my wife and says, if I could, I would divorce you guys right now and take my son home. My wife doesn't deserve that. But then I also see the words that were exchanged to my mother and 
any brother in here knows that moms hold a special place in your heart. I was fuming. I was ready to go to my father-in-law's room, kick down the boom, and just let him know. But I sat down on a potty stool. I was in the bathroom, right? I was out. There was a potty stool um, just conveniently in the living room. So I sat down there. I said, don't ask why. It was there. And I sat down, and I texted Pastor Rob. I texted my boy Steve, and I texted my best friend. I said, man, I can't tell you what's going on, but can you just pray for me? And I sat down as I'm texting this. I literally, as I finished sending these three texts, I felt these massive hands pressed down on my shoulder. Now, when I say press down, I mean, like, quite literally, like, it was like someone pushing down to the point my butt is hurting sitting on a potty stool. And I cannot move. My mind and my heart is already in the room. Only my body remains on that potty stool. But my wife comes out a little bit later, and she says, hey, hubby, like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what's happened. And, I, and suddenly the hands lift off, and I go to my wife, and I say, and I know this wasn't me. This was the Holy Spirit speaking. Saying, baby, the day we got married, I promised you that Ohana means family. And family means nobody who's left behind after God. Your Ohana, not my Ohana. Your family is my family. And even in the midst of the situation, I don't know how. But because I love you, I will honor your parents somehow, some way. Fast forward a week, we ended up going to Pennsylvania to my, my mom's place. And the day before we left back to Jersey, I sit down with my mom, my, my wife, and me. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're letting all their emotions and, and talking it out. My mom then does her side. I'm like, Ooh, can't wait for my turn. <laughs> And as I'm about to open my mouth and let my thoughts out, the Holy Spirit speaks again. And he says, Mom, Lois, Jesus is the head and we are the body. If there was ever a time to be united, it is now. We have to be people of prayer using the spiritual authority that the enemy in the world is trying to break us apart in. We must stand more united than ever before. As cool as it would have been that that was me, I knew that wasn't. Once again, the Holy Spirit spoke. The following two weeks just proceeded to get even worse and worse. And everybody's telling me, you got to get out, you got to get out, you got to get out. Granted, hear me, church, my my in-laws, they're not bad people but the circumstances are just not there for us. And things just keep getting worse and worse. Everybody's saying, you got to get out, try to find a place, but I've been looking for four years, guys. What am I supposed to do? My wife just gave birth. And I'm like looking to God, God, where are you? I don't have an answer, God. Where are you right now? You know, like a couple of weeks, there's been a lot of snow, and the Lord has blessed us through our pastor Rob by allowing us to work remotely. Yes. Work from home. 
Guys, I live far from here. <laughs> and so I got to work at a local Starbucks, and I was like, I have a little bit of time for myself. Let me just open up the Word. And I open up the Word, and I land on Philippians 4. If you know the passage in Philippians 4, it's a great passage to read when stress, anxiety, depression comes your way and grips your heart. When you're in a rut, Philippians 4 is a great passage to go. And as I'm reading and digesting through this passage, I, my, I actually end up talking to my boy Oscar over here. And I don't know what happens, but he just starts, we just start talking. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, you know, like, I, we used to say in my oldies group, the, the, you know what the Christian F word is? Saying you're fine. How's it going? Fine. Let's be honest, church. We're not. We're not. And so he asked me, how are you doing? I, uh, it's not that great, man. And I continued, uh, I kind of opened up with him. We processed through. And I'm like, but you know, God is good. He's like, how? I'm like, I don't know. But, you know. <laughs> but I land on this passage in Philippians 4. It says, do not be anxious. Church, hear that? Do not worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he does. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds all that we can understand. And his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. If you've been in long enough, you've been in church long enough, you know this. You've heard this passage. But there's a passage that ties this all together, and it's in verse 9. And he says, all that you have learned, church, all that you have received, and all that you have seen, and all that you have heard, put it into practice. Put it into practice. Romans 5 tells us that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character is where hope comes from. The Lord reminded me that day that before coming to the plant, there was a church that I was a part of. I served there for eight years. It was a long eight years. I started when I was 21. And granted, church, there's a lot of things I disagreed with and I wasn't happy with. My church was notoriously known for getting rid of staff. Boom, boom, boom. If you lasted more than two years, you were hired anywhere else because of how much you could endure. But as I, when I first started at church, there was about maybe seven to eight staff members. And over the course of about three, four years, I saw that dwindle down to three. The lead pastor, me, and a, and a part-time volunteer, Gitsman director. And when I saw this, the Lord spoke and said, he told me, Paul, I know this feels very discouraging, but I want you to know that in you, I have made a character that says when things get tough, you don't give up, but you see it through. You finished that race. 
And I remember the morning that I finally came to terms of where I was and all that I needed to be. I heard the voice of the Lord speak. It is time. It's time. And I went up to our lead pastor and I said, Pastor Yoon, it's time. And he turns to me and says, it's time. He sent me blessed and I, and I walked away from the church blessing them. And as I'm talking with Oscar, he's remind, I'm reminded of this, that the Lord said, Paul, in any situation, in any circumstance, you should leave. If that wasn't who I made you to be. Who I made you to be was a person who weathers the storm. Who trusts in me. Want to know that God, I, your father, is doing a good work in building your character. Church, God is not concerned as much as transforming your circumstance as he is transforming your character. Your, char- your, your circumstance can change, but if your character doesn't, then that suffering has been wasted. Because the truth is, is that what changes a person is their character. Your circumstance might not change, but if your character changed, the way you look at those circumstances does. Where you see no hope, God shows you hope. Where you see no future, God shows you a future. And so I was reminded how in the Western world we see time cyclically. That time is, what, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, and you go forth and go forth. And we see that time continues to rotate in a cycle. And we, look, we walk life walking forward looking what? ahead. You got to see where you're going. But the Israelites, that's not how they understood time and how they understood life. They understood time linear. You simply one day after the next and that's it. And when they would walk through life, they walked not walking forward, but they walked backwards. Why? Because for them, where life was, was not in the unknown. The thing that is supposed to happen, it was what has already happened. And so when they looked for God, they didn't look, to God, look for God in the unknown. They found evidence of God in their past. And there's a word we see in the Old Testament that this says, remember. Almost 1,200 times the, Bi- the Bible says, remember. Church, let me tell you this. Forgetfulness is not limited to simply old people. Young or old, we all forget. Husbands, there's a lot of dates we forget. This is why we have these things called cell phones with calendars and alerts that will ping, ding, 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 to remind us. But God also gives us these, and I want to I throw this out there, that maybe perhaps that you're in a place of suffering right now because God wants to remind you of something. God wants to remind you that, hey, man, I think you forgot about me. The Lord reminded me that in my present situation, remember my promises. Remember that I'm in control. And remember to stay faithful. In the midst of adversity and uncertainty, and when suffering comes our way, church, do not be surprised, but keep doing good. And put your hope in the Lord who was 
Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org.